0: Let's see how many of you can remember this advertising jingle. Finish this line. Like a good neighbor. Very good. The insurance company had that slogan since 1971. They were pitching their company and their agents as the folks you'd want to call when something goes wrong in your life in order to get help. Recently, they've changed their primary slogan to Here to help life go right. But I'm not here this morning to advertise for State Farm. And I could share some personal experiences when State Farm didn't show up like a good neighbor. (laughs) But it does raise the question for us, what does being a good neighbor look like? Our passage from Proverbs chapter 3 speaks to this issue. But before we go there, I'd like to frame our look at Proverbs 3 this morning with another famous discussion of what it means to be a good neighbor. One of Jesus' most famous parables was given as a response to the question, Who is my neighbor? The parable is usually referred to as the parable of the good Samaritan, but I wonder if a better title would be the parable of the good neighbor. In Luke ten twenty five, we read about an occasion when an expert in the Mosaic law came to test Jesus with a question. The question wasn't about being a good neighbor. The question was about inheriting eternal life. He asked Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus put the ball back into this theologian's court, asking him how the Mosaic law answers that question. Jesus asks the man to read the Mosaic Law and discover what he must do to inherit eternal life. The Bible scholar doesn't disappoint. He quotes two texts, Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes those same texts together like this, On another occasion, when he is asked about the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law, here, Jesus affirms the legal expert's answer. The key to inheriting eternal life, according to the Mosaic Law, is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. As a brief aside, as much as we Christians might expect or want the answer to say something about faith, tying love with inheritance makes good theological sense who inherits sons. Thus, the love being called for here is the true love that true sons have for their true father, which then spills over into love for their neighbors, just as much as the father's love for his eternal son spills over into love for his neighbors, many of whom he will adopt as his children and heirs. But Jesus doesn't elaborate on that point. Instead, he tells the theologian that if he loves God with all that he is and all that he has, and then he also loves his neighbor appropriately, he will live forever. That's not the end of the conversation, however. Look at Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, Luke tells us why the expert in the Mosaic Law asks this further question. This man tested Jesus with his initial question. He wasn't really looking for answers. He wasn't seeking clarity about who Jesus is. He was seeking to entrap him in his words, to expose Jesus as false. Jesus evades the trap, drawing the questioner into the trap by answering his question with a question and then affirming his answer. Now, off balance, the man asks another question. And this time, he's not seeking to trap Jesus, to get Jesus to say something wrong. He's seeking instead to show himself to be right. He's not foolish enough to attempt to justify himself with regard to his love for God, but he figures perhaps he can get confirmation that he's doing what is necessary to inherit inherit eternal life with regard to his love for neighbor. After all, the command to love God is so all-encompassing. We must love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Leviticus 19.18 doesn't actually say, love all your neighbors as yourself. Or it doesn't say, love your neighbor with all that you have and with all that you are. There must be a limit then. This must only apply to certain people. So he asks, who is my neighbor? Who is it that deserves my love? Here the man begins to show partiality. He wants to categorize people, and he thereby objectifies people, treating them as tools for his own self-justification. I've got to pull a Paul Harvey at this point. We'll come to the rest of the story at the end of our time this morning. And I realize some of you youngsters may not get that reference. Ask your parents or your grandparents later. Turn in your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 21. In the first 20 verses of Proverbs 3, we read a lot about our relationship with the Lord and His wisdom. There were even promises of life for those who obey the commands and find God's wisdom. Thus, the first part of the chapter highlights aspects of loving God. In verse 21, we shift to hearing about loving our neighbor. In verse 21, We'll see how that's going to look going on through the rest of the chapter. It breaks down into three sections, which I have framed in terms of a neighborhood. Thus, in verses 21 to 26, we read about the neighborhood watch. In verses 27 to 31, we'll read about neighborhood etiquette. And in verses 32 to 35, we'll hear about the neighborhood planner. Let's begin with verses 21 to 26, the neighborhood watch. Does everyone know what a neighborhood, neighborhood watch does? Neighbors in a community get together to discuss ways of keeping the neighborhood safe, uh, to reduce crime. In a good neighborhood watch program, each neighbor takes responsibility for everyone else. Let's hear how Solomon describes this, verses 21 to 26. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for Yahweh will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Solomon addresses his son directly again. Back in verse 7, he had warned his son not to be wise in his own eyes. The way to prevent that is to keep your eyes on God's wisdom. And as we keep coming back to, Paul tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Thus, we can read the instruction here as calling us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The wisdom that he embodies, the wisdom that he provides, will give us the grace we need for living. That's what verse 22 depicts. As in chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 3, Wisdom is depicted metaphorically as jewelry that beautifies the wearer. The phrase life for your soul is vivid in parallel with adornment for your neck. The word translated soul can refer, refer to the physical throat, the pathway where food and water flows in order to sustain life. The word adornment is again the Hebrew word for grace. We have the internal and external aspects of life in view again. Holding on to God's wisdom changes us from the inside out. Following God's wisdom in our lives is trusting His grace to lead us and to change us. The work God's grace does inside our hearts shows up in our words and our actions and our choices. Verses 21 to 24 can be viewed as giving us a poetic picture of a day in the life of someone following God's wisdom. Verse 22 essentially depicts the wise person getting dressed in the morning, not forgetting to put on the golden chain around his neck. Then verse 23 talks about how the wise person will walk securely throughout the day. Then verse 24 takes us to the end of the day, tucking in for a peaceful night's sleep. Essentially then, Solomon is describing the safety of the believer at all times, in all situations. God's wisdom enables us to walk securely without tripping over the obstacles of life. The word translated securely is the same word we saw in Proverbs one hundred thirty three, where Lady Wisdom promised that those who heed her counsel will dwell securely. And this word is related to the word translated trust in Proverbs 3.5. Solomon is depicting the safe life of the saved, the security of the believer. Even though there are many obstacles, stumbling blocks, and ditches along the path we must walk, the one who holds on to God's wisdom can navigate these difficulties with grace and skill. Because of this divinely provided security, sweet sleep is offered to Solomon's son and all who walk the way of God's wisdom. I want that, don't you? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you find yourself lying awake at night, remembering all the foolish decisions you made during the day. Or you're wondering what consequences might come tomorrow because of your foolish decisions today. When we pursue God's wisdom, when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus throughout the day, even when we make foolish decisions, we can rest securely knowing that the grace of God is sufficient to provide forgiveness for our failures. And when we know that we have pursued Him throughout the day, when we spent our day looking to Jesus, asking for wisdom, asking for grace to help us navigate the challenges of life, we can still rest secure even though we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Bedtime is a time of anxiety for many Christians. Either we're fretting about the unknowns of the future or we're grieving over the sins of the past. When God's wisdom characterizes our lives, when we fix our eyes on our Savior, we can experience sweet sleep Knowing that He's got us and He's got it, whatever it is. Ultimately, we can sleep peacefully because Jesus is our neighborhood watch. He doesn't sleep so that we can sleep. In verses 25 and 26, we move from a day in the life of a wise person to the end of life. Solomon commands us not to be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. This, I believe, is a reference to God's future judgment of the wicked. While there's plenty in Proverbs and in the Bible more broadly that would encourage us to f- to not, not to fear the harm wicked people can do to us, the ESV follows the Hebrew more accurately than the NASB or the New King James Version, both of which are actually following the Greek translation unnecessarily. The idea that God's judgment against the wicked might negatively impact the righteous is not uncommon in the Old Testament. But the way verse 26 continues the thought, we should hear Solomon warning his son, who cannot be assumed to be among the righteous yet. The only way for Solomon's son and for anyone to avoid sharing the ruin of the wicked on judgment day is to have Yahweh as one's confidence. God's wisdom will prevent a person from ending up among the wicked on judgment day. Again, it is the Lord Himself who Solomon says will protect a person from final judgment and eternal destruction. In other words, it is God alone who can save from God's own wrath. In verses 27 to 31, we move from a consideration of the Lord serving as the neighborhood watch to reflecting on neighborhood etiquette. What kinds of neighborhood rules govern our treatment of each other as neighbors? Look at verses 27 to 31. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. We are introduced to three kinds of neighbors in these verses. Our needy neighbor our innocent neighbor, and our violent neighbor. Let's consider our needy neighbor in verses 27 to 28. Solomon instructs his son about the danger of sins of omission, failing to do things we ought to do. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. That's a fair paraphrase of the first line, but the major question we have to wrestle with is, why is the good I have due to my neighbor? The ESV has a footnote that provides the more literal translation, do not withhold good from its owners. But still the question remains, why and in what sense does my neighbor own good that I currently have? It's possible to answer these questions a couple of different ways. And the way we answer these questions changes the meaning and application of this particular verse. Some have viewed this against the background of pursuing fairness to employees. The good that might be withheld is payment for services. Thus, if someone has worked eight hours today, you must pay them promptly. This idea is reflected in Leviticus 19.13, which says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. This would fit with the next verse, Proverbs 3.28, as well. Or, similarly, the good that might be withheld is something you have borrowed in pledge as is discussed in Exodus 22 26 and 27 which says if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body in what else shall he sleep and if he cries to me I will hear for I am compassionate if either of these approaches are what Solomon has in mind then it is not so much our needy neighbor who is in view Rather, Solomon is encouraging his son toward honesty and fairness in his dealings with a dependent neighbor, either an employee or a debtor. While I think this makes good sense of the passage and fits well with the Mosaic Law, a good case can be made for considering this in the more typical manner. Solomon is putting forward generosity toward needy people as a debt owed to our neighbors. We recognize Solomon's teaching in this section as an unpacking of the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. In light of that, I am reminded that Paul speaks of love for neighbor as a kind of debt. In Romans thirteen eight, Paul writes, "'Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Thus, the good which I have that is due to my neighbor includes my resources.'" I love my needy neighbor when I share my resources with him. The resources that my neighbor needs and I have must not be withheld. My needy neighbor has a right to my resources. Now, that doesn't mean he has a right to come into my home and take what belongs to him. God's word to him in this situation is you shall not steal. But God's word to me in this situation is, you shall not withhold. And from verse 28, you shall not delay. But the second line of verse 27 is important as well. The situation is defined as when the good is in your hand, in your power to give it. Thus, we trust the Lord to provide us with resources even beyond our immediate needs and the immediate needs of our family so that we might have something to share with our neighbor who is in need. And Solomon indicates that before the Lord, whenever we have the ability to meet a neighbor's need, whenever God has graciously provided the resources to us to meet a neighbor's need, then we are obligated to give. It is a debt of love to our neighbor. Thus Solomon warns his son about the danger of sins of omission. This is precisely the situation laid out in Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan neighbor. Verse 28 also pushes against delaying generosity. Sometimes we might be tempted to say, well, I'll help if no one else does. This attitude leads us to fail, to pay the debt of love we owe our neighbor. Now, in verses 29 to 30, we consider how to treat our innocent neighbor. If verses 27 and 28 treated sins of omission, verses 29 to 31 highlights certain sins of commission. In verse 29, our neighbor is described as dwelling trustingly beside us. The word translated trustingly is the same word we've considered earlier, which was translated securely, related to the Hebrew verb for trust. Thus, in some ways, our neighbor should be able to live alongside us and feel very secure in that position. In other words, we don't do anything that makes our neighbor feel threatened or unsafe by our presence in the neighborhood. And in fact, the corollary is also true. We have a responsibility to protect our neighbor. But Solomon specifically warns his son about plotting to hurt his neighbor. Thus, Solomon is not naive as to how his son could turn out. The kind of betrayal Solomon describes is despicable, because the person has apparently lived alongside the neighbor long enough that the neighbor does, in fact, trust him, does, in fact, feel safe next to him, and then he turns on him. This is how Judas treated Jesus. After more than three years of apparently close companionship, Judas plots to harm him, turning him in to the authorities who wanted him dead. Verse 30 depicts a more specific conflict At a basic level, Solomon simply instructs his son not to pick a fight unprovoked. But the word contend usually has to do with a more legal accusation. Thus, Solomon seems to specifically be warning against leveling false accusations, as in taking your neighbor to court without any legal basis. False accusations directly break the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." People might level false accusations or contend with their neighbor for no reason or when he has done you no harm in order to hurt the other person's reputation, gain some monetary benefit from them, or manipulate them into doing something they wouldn't normally want to do. However, Solomon does leave the door open for possible appropriate opportunities to contend with with a neighbor. In other words, Solomon allows that there may be times when a neighbor has harmed you And you can then contend with them by taking them to court. Of course, famously, the Apostle Paul escalates the ethic here by forbidding all Christians from ever taking other Christians to court. When harm is done between Christians, Paul insists that the way forward is to enlist the help of the church to move toward proper reconciliation. Having the Spirit of God and the Word of God in a more complete form than Solomon had surely must enable Christians to be in a better position to solve the problems that arise because of Christians sinning against Christians. Then in verse 31, Solomon points out our violent neighbor and insists that we must not envy him. Why on earth would we envy violent people? Well, I suppose it's because violent people often acquire much wealth and even prestige in a broken society through their violence violent people use violence to get stuff stuff that we might want but don't have and if they got what we want through violence then maybe we should try violence in order to get the things that we want this is similar to the warning scenario solomon pitched in chapter one violence has become such a feature of our entertainment we all need to be vigilant about the tendency to desensitize ourselves to violence by the ways it can be featured in the movies or shows we watch and the video games we play. Solomon's warning pushes us away from choosing violence as a way of getting what we want. Finally, in verses 32 to 35, Solomon shifts to explaining why his son should heed the commands of verses 27 to 31. And he does so by pointing to the neighborhood planner. Who is that, you ask? Why, this is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Look at verses 32 to 35. For the devious person is an abomination to Yahweh, but the upright are in his confidence. Yahweh's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. A neighborhood planner, typically, is involved with members of a particular community working toward developing certain objectives or goals for the neighborhood. Neighborhood planning involves mapping out the neighborhood, determining the kinds and numbers of homes that would be included in the neighborhood, the sizes of the lots, and what kinds of rules might be uniquely applicable to the neighborhood. As Solomon explains to his son why he ought to heed his instruction in this lesson, he defines two different kinds of neighbors who are defined in relationship to the neighborhood planner, Yahweh himself. Thus, rather than walking through verse by verse, I'd like to consider the bad neighbors mentioned in each verse, and then we'll look at the good neighbors mentioned in each verse. In the first three verses, the bad neighbor is described in the first line, and the good neighbor in the second line. But in the final verse, the order is climactically reversed. In verse 32, the bad neighbor is described as devious, twisted, crooked, and he is described as an abomination to Yahweh, a phrase that only appears in Deuteronomy and Proverbs. The word translated abomination refers to something that is disgusting, something that makes a person want to vomit. It is also used by itself about a hundred times throughout the Old Testament, but we'll focus on this exact phrase, an abomination to Yahweh, or an abomination to Him. In Proverbs chapter 6, Verses 16 to 19, when we get there, we will look at six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Thus, God hates the things that make him want to vomit. When we consider Deuteronomy's repeated usage of this phrase, we learn the kinds of things and the kinds of people that provoke the Lord in this way. Idolatry is big on the list, particularly the murder of children as an act of worship, Both idolatry and idolaters are abominations to the Lord. Those who dabble in divination or sorcery or attempting to talk to spirits of dead people are abominations to the Lord. Money earned by sexual immorality is an abomination to the Lord. It cannot be offered to the temple. Deuteronomy 17.1 says, Offering blemished sacrifices is an abomination to the Lord. Deuteronomy 25.16 says that all who act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord. Deuteronomy 22, five says that a woman who pretends to be a man by wearing men's clothing and a man who pretends to be a woman by wearing women's clothing are abominations to the Lord. Proverbs repeats many of these and adds some others besides. Three times in the book of Proverbs, false balances or unequal weights are described as an abomination to the Lord. This form of deception is disgusting to the Lord because this is a strategy by which wicked people impoverish and take advantage of others. The seven things listed in Proverbs 6, 16-19 are as follows. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Notice the way Solomon poetically uses body parts. Eyes, tongue, hands, feet, heart. This is to highlight that it is not just the quality that makes God sick. It's not just the sin that God hates. He hates the sinner. He is sickened by the sinner. Arrogance, deception, violence, scheming, discord... These are things that flow out of the hearts of sinful people. We cannot soften the biblical truth reflected here by saying God hates the sin, but not the sinner. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. As J. Adams says, that distinction is not only unbiblical, but also impossible to defend. God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends sinners there. So it is here in Proverbs 3.32, the devious person is an abomination to Yahweh. In verse 33 we learn that Yahweh's curse is on the house of the wicked. Many of the curses of the covenant specified in Deuteronomy 27 highlight the way people might mistreat their neighbors. For example, Deuteronomy 27:17 says, "Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark." Someone might attempt to move a neighbor's landmark in order to steal some of their neighbor's land. Anyone who does this is under God's curse. Or consider Deuteronomy 18. Cursed is Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Anyone who exploits someone who is disabled, particularly in the case of a blind man who is not able to identify who led him astray, is under God's curse. But according to Solomon, it's not just the person who is guilty of such things. It is his household who stands under God's curse. This fits with the Lord's revelation of His name and its meaning to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Yahweh passed before Him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I just finished reading an interesting study of violence in Scripture, and the author, Matthew Lynch, had some interesting insights on this beloved passage. He wrote, God's character is wildly imbalanced. The coexistence of wrath and mercy is not that of equal." If we take the language of mercy versus wrath in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in strictly mathematical terms, love to thousands versus three to four generations of judgment, God's mercy outweighs by at least 500 to one. Furthermore, he adds in a footnote, three to four generations is a shorthand way of saying one household, since a typical Israelite household held three to four generations. This is illustrated by Achan in Joshua 7. Achan coveted and then took spoils from battle that were supposed to be dedicated to Yahweh, a transgression of the covenant. Therefore, Achan and his family were executed. Whether for a wicked man or for his household, as we observed earlier, only the Lord can save from his own wrath. The mystery of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that the Lord does forgive iniquity and transgression and sin but he also by no means will clear the guilty, is revealed and clarified in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only through him that the curse can be removed because he became a curse as he died on that cross, enduring God's wrath against sinners and against sin. Thus the curse can only be lifted by trusting in the accursed Christ. But in verse 34, Solomon indicates that the Lord echoes Lady Wisdom. Or perhaps better, Lady Wisdom has echoed the Lord. Just as she promised to mock the scorners on the day of judgment, so the Lord does likewise. In judgment, he scorns those who scorn and mock his wisdom and his wise people. Finally, in the second half of verse 35, fools get disgrace. This will be the final word for fools of all stripes on judgment day. Shame and disgrace. In Daniel twelve two, we read of the future resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the fate of all bad neighbors. Well, what about good neighbors then? What do we learn about them in these verses? In the second half of verse 32, good neighbors are described as upright, the opposite of Devious and crooked, twisted. They're straight laced, and they enjoy God's intimate counsel. They are God's friends. Commentator John Kitchen writes God promises to all who walk with him an intimacy of relationship that includes the making known of his mind and will. Abraham was described as a friend of God, and the kind of friendship described here is illustrated well in Genesis 18. Prior to God's fiery judgment and destruction of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities for their abominations, the Lord told Abraham what he was about to do. In doing so, the Lord invited Abraham to respond. Fascinatingly, Abraham did respond multiple times, and his chief concern was God's own righteousness. But at the same time, Abraham was seeking to be a good neighbor to the, cities, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. He gave these cities, which undoubtedly had a reputation for their wickedness, the benefit of the doubt, supposing that it might be possible that there were 50 righteous people living in the city. The truth of the matter, however, is that there were less than 10. Nevertheless, the point to see here is that Abraham was a good neighbor in part because he had been invited into the intimate counsel of the one true God. Jesus describes friendship with him in similar terms. In John 15, 15, the night before he died, he tells his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Many of the men in our congregation have recently read a book entitled Made for Friendship. I commend the book to all of you, men and women alike. The author is Pastor Drew Hunter. At one point in the book, he writes, As we read the words Jesus spoke to those friends then... We read the words he still speaks to his friends today. The Bible reveals Jesus' heart and his plans. It is, among other things, a letter of friendship. Is that how you view the Bible? Is that how you pursue intimacy with Jesus? He offers the intimacy of friendship to you through revealing his words to you in this great book. Back in Proverbs 3.33, the second thing we learn about good neighbors is that Yahweh blesses the dwelling of the righteous. As opposed to being under God's curse, good neighbors are under God's blessing. I'm fast-forwarding here from Solomon's vantage point to think about us, Christians, in relationship with God on the basis of the new covenant. The Old Testament promises of blessing are fulfilled in the new covenant to all those who are in Christ. The righteous people are ultimately those who are counted righteous by faith in Jesus. The curse is gone, as we saw earlier, and there is only blessing for us for all of eternity. Like with the household of the wicked, this blessing extends to the dwelling, the resting place of righteous people. Isaiah uses this term translated dwelling in a new covenant prophecy. After the prophet speaks of the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he promises in Isaiah 32:18, "My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places." In Isaiah 33:20, this language will be used to describe the future new Jerusalem, where the people of God must always place their hopes. But in the meantime, God's righteous people will find themselves oppressed, humbled by enemies and by life's suffering circumstances. That's how Solomon characterizes good neighbors in Proverbs 33:4. The second line says, "But to the humble he gives favor." According to commentator Bruce Waltke, the Hebrew word translated humble is one of the major words for poor or impoverished in the Old Testament. He explains that this term always, quote, denotes the exploited and is never used for deserved poverty. Good neighbors are going to suffer. Good neighbors will find themselves in need of help, and the Lord here promises to help them. The word translated favor is the normal Old Testament word for grace, which we saw back in verse 22 as the adornment Solomon's son should wear around his neck. God gives grace to the humble, to the exploited, to those persecuted for righteousness' sake. The whole of verse 34 is quoted twice in the New Testament, once by Peter and once by James. You will probably recognize the wording of the second line as God gives grace to the humble. But the first line is quite different. Both 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4.6 have the first line as God opposes the proud. Both James and Peter quote the Greek translation of this verse, and the Greek translators seem to have paraphrased the Hebrew. Rather than focusing on the scorners... They preferred to refer to the proud, a more direct opposite to the word for humble. Nevertheless, Peter at least develops the context of Proverbs 3 pretty clearly as he calls for his readers to express humility toward each other. The poverty of spirit that should characterize followers of Jesus, that is a mark of our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, should not be covered over. Suffering Christians shouldn't wear a mask seeking to hide their difficulties, especially from fellow Christians. We freely admit our need and our suffering, trusting the Lord to provide sufficient grace for every situation. Finally, in the first line of verse 35, good neighbors are designated with the key word of Proverbs. They are the wise people. And the Lord's promise to wise people is that they will inherit glory or honor. This is the normal word for glory in the Old Testament. The fact that the great problem of humanity, according to Paul in Romans 3.23, is that we all lack God's glory is remedied here. The Lord promises that those who, by nature, lack God's glory, but receive God's wisdom during this life, will in the future inherit glory. Paul echoes this idea as well in Romans 2.6-10. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. There will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Thus, to the good neighbor, God promises an inheritance of glory. Now, the rest of the story. Let's return to Jesus' parable of the good neighbor in Luke 10. The expert in the Mosaic law, who presumably would have known all the legislation related to loving his neighbor from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and who also likely would have been quite familiar with the wisdom literature of Solomon, sought to justify himself by asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus' famous parable reveals that this is the wrong question. After telling the story, Jesus is going to turn the question around and give the Bible scholar a multiple-choice quiz from the story, who, who proves to be a neighbor? Let's review the story. Look at Luke 10, 30 to 35. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half-dead. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Consider the unfortunate situation of the victim. One writer summarizes particularly well, The victim in the parable is described as half dead. That is, he is near death and in desperate need of help. Whether the priest and the Levite thought he was dead or alive is unclear. But in either case, they had the obligation to help, either to bury the corpse despite defilement or to assist the man in need. That's the key observation. Help was owed. The priest and the Levite withheld the good that was due the wounded man. We are not told their motives. In this case, motive does not matter. Some have assumed that they might be concerned about being rendered unclean by touching someone who has been beaten and is probably bleeding, but even the strictest Jewish traditions allow for laws of unclean law, cleanliness laws to be set aside in order to save life or even to take care of an abandoned corpse. In any case, both the priest and the Levite saw the wounded man, and they both passed by on the opposite side of the road. But the Samaritan saw the wounded man and had compassion. And approached the man. Now, for the expert in the Mosaic law listening to the parable, the priest and the Levite would have been the officials in Israel who had a higher rank than himself. These are men he would have looked up to and respected. If they wouldn't do their duty to help the wounded man, then that man has no help in Israel. But it's the Samaritan, the outsider who becomes the hero. One commentator observes, the inclusion of a Samaritan in the parable would seem to seal the wounded man's fate. For if a priest and Levite offered no help, how much less a Samaritan? Ironically, Jesus makes the Samaritan, whose theology he judged defective on another occasion, in the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus makes that Samaritan man a moral hero in Israel. The Samaritan goes above and beyond, in fact. He pays the innkeeper enough to care for the wounded man for an additional two weeks, according to one student of Scripture's calculations. Jesus presses home the point in verses 36 and 37 Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The man had asked, Who is my neighbor? Surely he intended to see whom he could eliminate from neighbors to whom he might owe love. But Jesus makes it clear, and the man seems to understand that loving your neighbor means being a good neighbor, and being a good neighbor will often be demonstrated in feeling deep compassion and showing practical mercy. The Samaritan saw a need, and he moved to meet that need. That's a good neighbor. The Samaritan didn't, didn't, the Samaritan didn't inquire as to his ethnicity or social status. In fact, Jesus doesn't specify that the wounded man was Jewish. He, we assume he was, since he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. But Jesus doesn't draw attention to anything about the man other than what happened to him. One pastor observes, Your neighbor can be anyone from your closest companion to a casual acquaintance to a complete stranger to an explicit enemy. And another student of Scripture defines neighbor in terms of nearness and need. Nearness and need. In this parable, Jesus is not answering the theologian's question, who is my neighbor? But instead, he's restating his answer to the first question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells the Jewish scholar, go and act like the Samaritan, who felt compassion and extended practical care to the wounded Jew he happened to come across. The Samaritan's compassion expresses the love for neighbor that fulfills the Mosaic Law and shows him to be a true son of God, an heir of God's promises. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, Our relationship with fellow human beings validates or invalidates our claims to know and love God. Only Jesus totally loved God and his neighbor as himself. Only Jesus was consistently merciful to everyone who came his way. When Jesus affirmed his response, quoting Deuteronomy 6, five and Leviticus 19.18, as laying out the way to inherit eternal life, the Bible scholars should have responded by saying something like, but I know I don't love God that way, and I know I don't love my neighbor as myself consistently. What then? In so doing, he might have received the justification that comes apart from the law, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Instead, he preferred to attempt to justify himself. Ultimately, this expert in the Mosaic Law is in just as bad a position as the wounded man in the story. While this is not Jesus' point in telling the story, it is also true that Jesus has come to be a good neighbor, the best neighbor to this needy Bible scholar and to all other sinners. The sinless Son of God moved with compassion comes into the world of spiritually dead sinners like the Samaritan approached the wounded man and he paid the cost to bring healing and rescue to us sinners dying on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. One pastor summarizes it like this. We were left for dead in our sin but Christ rescues us, heals us and pays for our needs by His grace. He freely gives to us what we could never earn. He gives to the world the hope of eternal life based on his perfect obedience to God and sacrifice of his life. So those who repent of their sins and trust in him receive as a gift eternal life from God. Like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. Better than a good neighbor, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. He has explained what he was doing in the scriptures, and he calls sinners everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' friends trust him and obey him. As Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. As Pastor Drew Hunter explains in the book Made for Friendship, is our obedience a prerequisite to entering into fellowship with Jesus? Thankfully, no. Jesus didn't say that we become his friends if we obey him, but that we already are. Even as he says this, he already considers his disciples his friends, and he will soon lay his life down for them. And the very reason why he must lay his life down for them is due to their disobedience. So Jesus is not telling his disciples how they can become his friends. He is telling them how they must demonstrate the reality of their friendship with him. Our obedience doesn't earn this relationship with Jesus, it confirms it. Obedience to Jesus demonstrates the reality of friendship with Jesus. Jesus is the best friend, the best neighbor anyone could ever ask for. Perhaps we could even turn Mr. Rogers' famous theme song into a kind of prayer. Lord Jesus, won't you be my neighbor? Will you care for me the way the Samaritan cared for the wounded man? But then we can remember Jesus has already come to be our neighbor. He's already provided our greatest need and he's already established a new neighborhood in which we must live. Now, we are called to be good neighbors, to go and do likewise, to provide compassion and healing, security and safety for the needy people God places in our path. Let's pray for the grace to both see the needs in front of us as well as meet the needs with the resources God supplies. Father, thank you for...